0: This is the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy, independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 17, episode 18, In the Footsteps of the Assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald's New Orleans, talking with David Feldman. As the 59th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy looms on November 22nd, Our focus today is on Lee Harvey Oswald, the man that the Warren Commission held was the sole assassin of the 35th president. Oswald was born in New Orleans in 1939, spent much of his childhood there, and in the summer of 1963, some say that he conspired to assassinate the president in the Big Easy. Our guest today is David Feldman, who conducts walking tours of New Orleans. His JFK Oswald Assassination Conspiracy Tour is a favorite for visitors. David joins us today from his home in New Orleans. Hi, David, and welcome to the show.
1: Well, hello, and thank you for inviting me.
0: My pleasure. David, how did you develop your interest in Lee Harvey Oswald and his links to New Orleans?
1: Well, I was a freshman in high school, and I stuffed envelopes for Kennedy in '60. My mother was a Roosevelt Democrat. She took my sister and me to the inaugural parade. We saw Jack and Jackie walking down Pennsylvania Avenue. And about a thousand days later, I was given the family's only car to drive to Washington for his funeral. I got there around, I got to Washington around seven o'clock at night and I got into line to go through the Rotunda and pay my respects. And I was abreast of the Capitol building. And I thought this is gonna be a trick, you know, easy. Well, it turns out that the line went up 15 blocks up Independence Avenue, turned left one block and came 15 blocks down East Capitol Street. Well, I finally get up the steps and I pay my tearful respects and I really have to use a bathroom. So the Capitol policeman directed me down a long hallway and said, open the last door on your left. And it was a caucus room, plush carpets, green leather chairs, all marble baths, platoons. It must have been a Democratic caucus room. (laughs) And uh, I used the bathroom. I came out and I figured I'll just sit down in one of these chairs and I watched the line disappear into darkness up East Capitol Street and promptly fell asleep. At which time, about four hours later, a Capitol policeman gently nudged me and said, we're closing the building to move the casket. You have to leave. That's how it used to be in the, back in the day, y'all. What, basically, what happens after that is I go on with my life I entered the Marine Corps. I qualify with the rifle at the same score as Oswald, 212, which makes me a sharpshooter, not an expert. And for 50 years, I don't think about it, Mm -hmm. quite frankly. Then I come to New Orleans. We move here. We take an apartment around the corner from a two-story yellow building, and we get a little dog. I'm walking the dog, and a man comes out of the building. We start to talk. He fusses over Freddie, my dog, and he says, Wanda Valdez lived over in the back there on the left. The only one I knew was a Juan Valdez who had a burrow and uh, two sacks of Colombian right. coffee. <laughs> then on the right, he says, Dr. Mary Sherman lived there. Okay. Who's Dr. Mary Sherman? Finally, he said, Lee Oswald visited here often. Oh. Well, 50 years later, there I go back down the rabbit hole of Oswald and find out all of that went on here in New Orleans in the summer of 63. At the beginning of my life, the most formidable experience, and close to the end of my life, the circle closes. It's Oswald again.
0: That is fascinating. Let's jump into your walking tour of New Orleans. Tell us about the ground that you cover both literally and figuratively.
1: Well, our tour begins by the Benjamin Franklin statue in Lafayette Square across the street from a building that was 544 Camp Street. That's a very famous address among conspiracy theorists. Basically, Oswald returned to New Orleans in late April of 1963. Uh, New Orleans was the place of his birth. Uh, He stayed in New Orleans until about late September, five months. Mm -hmm. During those five months, I think he uh, lived four personas. He basically juggled four separate missions. Mm. He shepherded a young woman involved in a highly secret cancer research project. This went on all summer. He worked with the anti-communist, anti-Kennedy, anti Castro anti-desegregation contingents in New Orleans. And he very publicly burnished his credentials as a recently returned defector to the Soviet Union, a fair play for Cuba leaf litter, Marxist-Leninist. We don't split hairs down here. He was a commie. Mm-hmm. And then his fourth life was as an operative for both the CIA and the FBI. My tour works. I trace his lives. I visit some of the locations. I tell the official stories. And then I add a few documented facts and basically ask you, does this story still make sense? I'm kind of making a case for Oswald. My case, Oswald was a naturally talented, trained, resourceful, and experienced intelligence operative. When he stepped off that bus in New Orleans in late 1963, he was six and a half years into a very promising career, or so he thought.
0: So that five months in 1963 that he spent there in New Orleans, he was a very busy guy, it sounds like.
1: Yes. Yes, he was. But as I say, he was a naturally gifted Trained and an experienced operative.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Kind of like me, he was a dilettante. He had a lot of bullet points, but not much behind them. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, when you say he was an intelligence operative, of course in the early 1960s he spent a couple of years in, in the, the old soviet union when he got his honorable discharge from the marine corps he defected and went to live in the soviet union he lived in minsk and that's where he married his his wife marina and then in i guess 1962 he wanted to come back to the united states and he brought his wife and young daughter back to the united states so was he, was he already an intelligence operative at that time when he returned from Russia? Or did, did his intelligence activities begin only upon his return?
1: No, his activities began while he was in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Perhaps his first mission was to go to a place called the Queen Bee in Japan. Now, Oswald was a radar intercept officer. He tracked airplanes from Mitsugi Air Base which was the uh, base from which our high-altitude U-2 reconnaissance flights flew over eastern Russia and eastern China. He was a radar operator there. He kept track of them. Well, he was making about 85 bucks a month, and he went to this place called the Queen Bee, where all the U-2 pilots hang out with the lovely hostesses. Apparently, he was. they were worried that uh, the U-2 pilots might be divulging information Oswald, like I say, was making $85 a month, ended up going to this Queen Bee nightclub repeatedly and it cost 60 to $100 a night. Mm. I believe what he was doing was he was observing and he was reporting back if there were any slips.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: That was his first mission.
0: That was his first mission. Now let's come back to that summer of 1963. Of course, for, for anyone who's seen the film, JFK, Oliver Stone's JFK movie in 1991, a a big conspiracy theory there. You have players like uh, Jim Garrison, the district attorney. You have Clay Shaw, who was a a prominent businessman in New Orleans. Uh, You had Guy Bannister, who was the virulent anti communist. What interactions, if any, did Lee Harvey Oswald have with those three players? Who were very prominent in the JFK film, and of course, who, who ended up also being, being part of the, the trial that uh, Jim Garrison, as the district attorney, brought.
1: Well, two witnesses say that, in fact, he was seen, he, they saw him at Guy Bannister's office. Guy Bannister's office was kind of a, a focus for the anti-communist, anti-Castro, anti-desegregation. New Orleans was pretty much in a turmoil here in the 1960s. So we have some witnesses there. They were not considered credible. I don't believe he has any direct, connect- well, he does have a direct connection with having been seen with Clay Shaw up in a place called Clinton in uh, the beginning of September. There were other contentions made, but I can't document them. And Jim Garrison didn't do a very good job if you read the testimony of the trial. His investigation was pretty much sabotaged by leaks, by financial constraints, and by witnesses who realized later that it wasn't in their interest to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. Garrison had the right conspirator. He had the wrong conspiracy.
0: He had the right conspirator, meaning Clay Shaw was the conspirator?
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. If there's a framework for for my tour, it's the irony that Ben Franklin said, three may keep a secret if two are dead. There are too many conspirators looking for three.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So who was the third conspirator then?
1: Who was the third conspirator if I start with three? Yes. Well, Robert Kennedy, the attorney general, had really relentlessly targeted Carlos Marcello, Mm -hmm. the mafia boss here in new orleans Mm -hmm. he might be one but basically by late late spring of 1963 kennedy's agenda threatened the power the profits and the future prospects of a lot of individuals and powerful interests Mm
2: -hmm.
1: okay that's where we get a lot of our conspirators Mm
2: -hmm.
1: who was the most threatened Okay, I believe that on that list, we certainly could put Carlos Marcello on that list. Perhaps we can put LBJ, but I don't want to mention at this particular point who the third conspirator would be. Mm -hmm. But I only want three.
0: three. Now, it was documented during the during his during the summer 1963. He got in a scuffle with uh, he was handing out literature for the fair play for cuba committee and he got in a scuffle on the streets he was he was arrested And then subsequently, he appeared in a television interview debate with one of the guys who who attacked him. I guess it was Carlos Bringer, who had attacked him on the streets of New Orleans. And that's one of the few TV interviews that we have of Lee Harvey Oswald. Was that all a a setup? Was he... Tell us about that. It was a
1: piece of... Yes, okay. The official story, basically, is that he... Had gone down to Bringire's a couple of days before and said he wanted to help the anti Castro Cubans. Mm-hmm. And he even turned over his much prized Marine Corps manual with his name in it as proof, as evidence that he was a recently returned Marine and could help with training. Mm-hmm. Three days later, he's leaving for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee on Canal Street. A scuffle breaks out between these anti Castro Cubans and Oswald. They're all arrested. They all go to the police station. This has all been filmed. Yes. They all go to the police station. The uh, anti-Castro Cubans post $10 bail. Oswald stays in jail at night, all night. In the morning, he asks Francis Martello, lieutenant, to make a phone call for him. He says, I want you to call the FBI office in New Orleans, and I want you to ask for Warren DeBruys, Agent Warren DeBruys. Well, Martello makes the call and a young clerk by the name of William Walter picks it up and says that DeBreeze is at a barbecue. Well, the message was, just tell Agent DeBreeze that you have Lee Oswald in custody. Well, since DeBreeze isn't there, the clerk, William Walter, calls his superior, who says, go into the files and see what you have on Oswald. So Walter goes into the files, and he sees first A surveillance file, to be expected. They were watching the man who's leafleting for fair play for Cuba. But he finds a second file, a confidential informant file. Mm -hmm. Now, those files disappeared on the evening of November 22nd. And nobody has ever seen them, okay, Mm -hmm. since. But they probably exist somewhere among the papers. So that's... William Walter comes around again on the guitar on November the uh, 17th, when he receives a telex, basically instructing all branches of the uh, FBI to check with their confidential informants to see if there is any credence to the fact that an attempt will be made on John F. Kennedy's life in Dallas on November the 22nd. Mm -hmm. That telex also disappeared. Because November the 17th was the day That Lee Oswald went into the FBI office in Dallas and left a note for Agent James Hoskey. Funny how Oswald always had a named FBI contact. Mm -hmm. They said that the note threatened violence, but they destroyed the note on Monday. I believe that Oswald was trying to alert the FBI as to what was going to happen. I love to tell stories. I'm not sure they're relevant to your question. Forgive me.
0: (laughs) No, 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 not at all, not at all.
1: Uh, I'll give you, I can give you a couple of others. One here, uh, when Oswald came back to New Orleans, he got a job with the Riley Coffee Company. Right. Now, this is a man who uh, was given an undesirable discharge Mm -hmm. from the Marine Corps. This is a man who had spent two and a half years in Russia. Now, Riley Coffee was a pretty conservative company. They required background checks and even credit checks on all of their potential employees. Lee Harvey Oswald was hired by the Riley Coffee Company to clean coffee machines for a dollar and a half an hour. Uh-huh. What's interesting is who hired Lee Oswald. It was a fellow named William Monahan, 30 years retired from the FBI. Mm. William Monahan had headed the uh, Retired FBI Agents Association. William Monaghan had only been hired as a vice president at the Riley Coffee Company a couple of weeks before, and a few weeks after the assassination, he left Riley for a a good job on the uh, New Orleans Crime Commission. Adding those few details, what's wrong with this story?
0: Well, exactly. What's wrong with this story? It's you know once again, it's as you said uh, the the connections between Lee Harvey Oswald and the FBI, whether it was FBI agents in New Orleans or Dallas. You've just documented a couple of those connections right there.
1: Let me give you a really a really good one. After returning to the United States in June of '62, Oswald spent eight months in in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. He had two jobs. One of them was with a heating and ventilating company, but he got a job with a company called Jager's Childs and Stovall, a photographic reproduction company. They turn little pictures into big pictures. Mm-hmm. Oswald was hired on October the 12th. On October 18th, JFK went on national television to tell us about the installation of Russian missiles in Cuba. Mm-hmm. He showed these large photographs taken by our U-2s. Those photographs had been uh, made and labeled by Jagers, Childs, and Stovall. What's wrong with this story?
0: Yes. <laughs> There's another Oswald connection to uh, to intelligence. So let's come back to... When did Jim Garrison begin his investigation and how did that investigation and trial unfold? Because that was that was kind of the 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 conclu- the apex if you will of the Lee Harvey Oswald story in New Orleans. Tell us about that. When did Garrison have his first suspicions that there was some conspiracy afoot in New Orleans?
1: On November the 23rd, okay? Mhm. There had been a beating at Guy Bannister's office the day before about Jack Martin. They had gone to celebrate the assassination of Kennedy at a bar around the corner from 544. When they got back, they got into an altercation. So Jack Martin ends up in the hospital. He ends up shooting his mouth off uh, about all kinds of things. He also, uh, Garrison, got information that somebody had called Dean Andrews, who was in the hospital asked if he would go and represent Oswald in Dallas. Hmm. Don't forget, Oswald had said in his when he was first on TV after the assassination, "I'm just a patsy." That was a message to New Orleans. You know, he had also said, "I'd like some legal representation, but these police officers had not allowed me any. Mm-hmm. So Garrison had those two pieces of information, but even perhaps more important, A strange fellow by the name of David Ferry had shown up at Oswald's old apartment at 4907 Magazine Street. Oswald had been gone more than a month. Mm -hmm. But Ferry asked Jesse Warner if she found a library card in Oswald's apartment.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: She said no. She thought that Ferry was just a freak. But she called a friend who knew a newspaper man and talked about what happened that afternoon, the afternoon of the assassination. Mm -hmm. And the newspaper man contacted Garrison on Sunday night, two days after. Garrison had his men and the police going to David Ferry's apartment where they found two of his associates. They also found a number of guns. They arrested the associates, but David Ferry wasn't there. He had been warned not to come back to New Orleans that night Mm -hmm. by his attorney, G. Ray Gill. He didn't come back until Monday, and he didn't meet with the FBI about the library card or anything else until Wednesday. When they asked about that library card, and they did specifically, uh, he showed them an expired library card from the New Orleans Public Library. That was not the card that he had issued in his name. Mm Mm-hmm. The card that was issued in his name was for the Tulane Medical Library as a part of the cancer project, which was Oswald's first life.
0: Mm-hmm. Wasn't uh, that card that you're referring to, the public library card, that was issued in the name of Alec Heidel?
1: No, this was, this was Ferry's card. It was issued to him. I see. He paid money for it, and it was for a non-resident card. It was expired by eight months. He had been living elsewhere when he got that card. Uh-huh. OK, the uh, the library card is key to the whole thing, but it hasn't turned up. Mm
0: hmm. So almost uh, almost immediately, Jim Garrison uh, suspects that while Lee Harvey Oswald was in New Orleans, that a conspiracy was being hatched. And tell us the next. Tell us the 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 rest of the story about the investigation and the trial of Clay Shaw.
1: Well, the investigation con- continued. The call that Dean Andrews got was from someone named Clay Bertrand. I'm not sure exactly why it would have taken so long for Garrison to find out that Clay Bertrand was Clay Shaw. He just had to go down to Matassa's bar at the other end of the French Quarter where he was known as Clay Bertrand. Six, in 67, he's arrested, and uh, 69, the trial takes place. Now, during the time of his serious investigation, he was uh, hindered in every way that could possibly take place. Witnesses from out of state were not extradited. Witnesses changed his uh, changed their testimony on the stand. It was truly a bit of a fiasco. The one uh, tripped... Clinton, Louisiana, to the uh, prim- Hospital for the Criminally Insane, which tied Ferry and Shaw and Oswald together. That was pretty much debunked. Although I had someone on my tour who was the grandson of the man, he said the story is true. All three of them were in a car. Uh, really, it's kind of uh, strange. But it took the jury less than an hour to find Clay Shaw not guilty. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting facts is that Clay Shaw sued to, uh, for compensation. He was a ruined and sick man at the time, and uh, unfortunately, he died before could get his day in court. And the Supreme Court down here in Louisiana said the case was moot mm-hmm. because he was dead. Mm-hmm. Did I go in deeply enough into that?
0: <laughs> yes. And then uh, uh- his
1: well, one of the interesting sidelights is. Since he was using public money for his investigation, what he was doing became public knowledge, and his, his uh, investigation was hindered that way. So he got private funding from a fellow named John Ralt, a big oil man who had a big skyscraper here in New Orleans. Well, it just so happened there was a terrible fire in John Ralt's building, and five beauticians from the beauty salon on the floor below the restaurant burned to death. Mm. That's the kind of stuff that was happening. Now, I think it's really important, if you don't mind, to give you just a one minute, the history of the first eight days of Oswald's, uh, of the assassination, okay. because this is, makes it clear how this all came about. And quite frankly, we're thinking November 22nd, Friday, Kennedy's killed a little more than an hour later, Oswald is arrested. Saturday morning, November 23rd, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover on the phone to LBJ, President, on his first day. The evidence against Oswald is not very strong. Sunday morning, the 24th, Oswald is killed. Sunday afternoon, November 24th, J. Edgar Hoover memo to the White House. The thing I am concerned about is so is Mr. Katzenbach, the assistant attorney general, is having something issued so that we can convince the public that Oswald is the real assassin. Monday, November 25th, Kennedy's funeral. Nicholas Katzenbach, the associate attorney general, sends a memo to the White House. Quote, the public must be satisfied that Oswald was the assassin, that he does not have Confederates who are still at large, that the evidence was such that he would have been convicted at trial. We need something to head off public speculation or congressional hearings of the wrong sort. Tuesday, November 26th, uh, Assistant FBI Director William Sullivan sends a letter outlining the structure of the investigation. In other words, this report is to settle the dust. The dust is, is that he is the assassin who has killed the president of the United States. Friday the 29th, the Warren Commission is appointed. Sounds sinister, doesn't it?
0: It does indeed.
1: Tell me. (laughs) It's not. These are responsible men, and we're only a year out from the Cuban Missile Crisis. Had this gotten out of hand that the Russians or the Cubans had killed the president, it would have gotten out of hand. Mm
0: -hmm. So, David, tell me, as a result of all your study and the fact that you were right, you, you live right there in New Orleans, and there there are still some of the some of the contacts and certainly the sites that that existed during Lee Harvey Oswald's life. Tell us, who do you think actually killed President Kennedy?
1: Well, I'm going to step deftly around that question and rephrase it. By the late spring of 1963, the profits, the power and the future prospects of a lot of individuals and interests were threatened by Kennedy's agenda. Number one on Kennedy's agenda was nuclear non-proliferation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He was the one who created uh, the U.S. Arms and Disarmament Agency. Mm-hmm. This was number one as his agenda. So if we think back then, who was perhaps most threatened Existentially threatened by Kennedy's agenda, mm-hmm. and who would be equally as threatened if they were found if to be holding the smoking gun? And as to your earlier point, 59 years later, for whom would it still be catastrophic to be found holding the smoking gun?
0: Mm-hmm. So, who is that? <laughs> uh. I ain't saying you ain't saying,
1: (laughs) but I've given you all you need. All we need to research it—just find out what was happening in June of
0: '63. In June of '63. Well, that's June of '63. Of course, President Kennedy made that famous speech at American University, in which he talked about we all inhabit this small planet. It's a—it's a famous speech of his. What one of his last major public speeches, where he talks about us all inhabiting this uh, this one planet and very much speaking in favor of non-proliferation, nuclear non-proliferation. Well, David, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners about Lee Harvey Oswald and his connections to New Orleans?
1: Well, up until the pandemic, we used to sell his birthday, celebrate his birthday on the 18th of October up at uh, Les Bon Temps Roulay. and basically... They toast a very good soldier, a very intelligent, a very good intelligence operative and a patriot. Okay, and they have reason to believe that. I have reason to believe that also. I think he was a patsy, a man who was uh, well-intentioned. But easily misled, easily deceived. Mm -hmm. I believe, like most people, he was looking forward to a long an exciting career as a mid level intelligence operative, perhaps retiring after 20 years and going into private industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a continuum from the day he entered the Marine Corps to the day he died mm-hmm. uh, that he was basically always performing missions, mm-hmm. whatever he, for the most part, was told. I guess I will continue to maintain that in the absence. Of other documents. It seems to me that everything that's been released and the twenty seven volumes of the Warren Report with all their appendices, there's a case to be made for that. And I believe that future documents will probably cast even more doubt. The most important thing though, I think, is is the con are the consequences, which we're still very much feeling today. We got into the Vietnam War. There were massive demonstrations on campus, sometimes violent, as at the Democratic Convention. President Nixon came in, took him five years to end the war, as he had promised to do. He also created the all-volunteer army so that if we ever went to war or anything else like that, there would no longer be demonstrations in the streets. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: My kids weren't going to go. Your kids weren't going to go. It was an all-volunteer army. At the same time, the economy required more technological education, so they made vast amounts of student aid possible, tremendous expansion of facilities at university campuses. Basically, now you had your eye on getting a job when you went out. You became apathetic. Mm -hmm. You didn't get involved in political things that might reflect on your resume, on your employment applications. So... The consequences we still have are still with us and are still contributing to the fact that that was the first event that really made us suspicious of our government.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And that happened on May 5th, 1969, I believe, on ABC's Goodnight America with Geraldo Rivera. That's the first time the Zapruder film was shown to the public. Mm-hmm. And that made us, well, that stirred up a real dust storm and made us wonder about whether or not the government tells the truth.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, David Feldman, for his unique perspective on Lee Harvey Oswald and Lee Harvey Oswald's connections to New Orleans, and in particular, those five months in 1963 when he was resident there in New Orleans. And David, how can our listeners follow you?
1: Well... They can take my tour. If they come to New Orleans, they will find that and our blog on the Savvy Native, S-A-V-V-Y, savvy
0: com. And David, do you have a Twitter handle? No. Nope, no. I do not. Okay. Okay. So that's so your blog is called the Savvy Native. So if any listeners... Well,
1: actually, that's, that's the website.
0: That's the website.
1: That details the tour. And that's where sometimes you will find my blog posts on my, as I learn more.
0: I see. Well, listeners, you heard it directly from David, Savvy Native. Go to Google and you'll take you straight to that uh, website. Once again, David, thank you so much for being with us and look forward to having you back as more information continues to unfold in this 59-year-old mystery.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And for my listeners, today's episode is number 343. The San Francisco Experience has listeners in 65 countries and is carried on 19 platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, and Odyssey, America's second largest radio network. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco. And before you go, this podcast is being brought to you by Bricko. Bricko is an environmentally conscious business promoting creative interaction with, with products angled toward children and children at heart of all ages. A portion of every purchase goes directly towards helping mitigate the effects of climate change. To get involved, here's the website GoBricko.com. That's spelled G O B R I C K O.com. And if you use the user code Jim, J-I-M, you can save 15% on your purchase at checkout. Again, that's gobricko.com, user code Jim.